Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians, Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. We are going to focus on Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, but um, in order to kind of remind us of where we are, I'm going to start back in verse 9 of chapter 2. Paul has been talking to the Colossians about what is about who is important in their life, in their pursuit of holiness, in their pursuit of salvation. And so we will pick up today as we read from Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him, you also were circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Let's pray. Our God and Father above, we ask that you guide us. Guide us by your spirit as we work our way through this portion of the letter to the church in Colossae. Guide us by your word in our daily lives and guide us in a way that we might see the light that you have given, that we might find freedom in the truth and that in the freedom that you give us through your truth, we will discover your peace and your will. Lord, we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. This may be a silly question to ask, but have you ever had a problem in your life that you couldn't figure out how to deal with? That you just couldn't figure out the, the way to, to fix the problem that was there? It might have been a, a, car, a, a car issue. Maybe you're kind of handy around the car, but you've done everything you know with the engine and it, you just, it, it just won't run. Or, you know, maybe it's a, a parenting issue. You've done absolutely everything you can, everything that you know to do with your child, and it, it's just not working. Or whatever the issue is, you, you run up against the wall trying to figure out how to fix this problem. And when that is the issue, when we have this problem that we absolutely cannot fix, there are three questions that we really should ask ourselves. The first question is, well, who can fix it? Who can take care of what I can't do on my own? The second is, what is that person going to do? And the third is, how are they going to do it? Paul has been talking from Colossians chapter one, answering the who question. He's told us twice. We read the second time here. He's told us that Christ is preeminent. Christ Jesus is the only way to salvation. Declaring him to be Lord in your life is the only means of salvation. But how did he do it and what did he do for us? And that's what we are going to begin looking at today. We know the who. 
We know the one who can fix the problem for our sins, but how did he do it and what did he do? And today we'll answer those questions through this sentence. Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves by nailing our sinful record to the cross, giving us victory in him. Once again, Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves by nailing our sinful record to the cross, giving us victory in him. First, Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Now, to understand this, what we read in verses 11 and 12, which say in him, you were also circumcised by the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. To understand that, we need to go back toward closer to the beginning of Scripture. In, in Genesis chapter 17, God has called Abraham to himself. He has called him to be a people and, and has promised Abraham children. And there's a problem. Abraham doesn't have children. And so God has repeated his promise to Abraham in chapter 15 that he gave him the promise initially given to him in chapter 12. And he repeats the promise again in chapter 17, except he adds something to it this time for Abraham. He adds the sign of circumcision as a sign of Abraham being set apart through a bloody act. He and his family being set apart as special to God. Fast forward to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 10. The, the nation of Israel, the, the family of Abraham has grown to be a multi-million person nation. They have wandered through the wilderness for 40 years because of their own rebellion, their own stubbornness. They are on the banks of the Jordan River getting ready to, to enter the promised land. And Moses renews the covenant for them in the book of Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy chapter 10, as Moses is giving some of the commands that God has given to him, God says, circumcise your hearts. And we see that for the people of Israel, circumcision was not only a physical act. It was a physical representation of a spiritual act. Because the circumcision of the heart is putting aside our sinful nature and pursuing a new enlivened heart, a regenerated heart that has the law of God written upon it that is tuned to God and to God alone. Well, then as Moses, God through Moses goes on in the book of Deuteronomy, laying out the covenant, we get near the end. We get a hint in our Old Testament reading today from Deuteronomy uh, chapter 30, verses 1 through 10, that things were not going to work out well for the Israelites. God has given his law in the book of Deuteronomy for a second time. He has told them the blessings that they will get for keeping the law. And then he has told them the curses that will come upon them if they don't keep the law, namely expulsion from the promised land. And in Deuteronomy chapter 30, God hints at the fact that there's going to be problems because he says, when you break the law and when I kick you out of the land and when you repent, I will restore you to the land. But not only will he restore them to the land, what did God say in what we read from Deuteronomy chapter 30? Remember in Deuteronomy chapter 10, he says, circumcise your hearts. In Deuteronomy 30, he says, 
when you repent, when you return, I will circumcise your hearts. Why would God have to circumcise the hearts of the Israelites after he commanded them to do that very thing? Because they couldn't do it themselves. They were totally and completely incapable of taking their own sinful nature and setting it aside so that they might have a heart that has God's law written on it and is tuned to God. And Paul picks up that imagery here in in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, when he says that this person, Jesus Christ, in whom the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form and who has fully given you salvation is going to do that circumcision of the heart on behalf of God. So that is how Christ works for us. That is how Christ solves the problem that we cannot fix ourselves. And he and he goes on to say that this circumcision will not be a circumcision done by hands. It will not be a physical circumcision. It will be a circumcision of the heart that only Jesus can do. And it is done in the being buried with him in baptism and being raised with him through our faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Verse 12 follows on. It's it's the second half of the sentence that begins in verse 11. Paul's not stopping here to tell us how to baptize people. He's saying that the new spiritual reality is a baptism, a baptism into death. And how do we physically represent that in the New Testament church? Through baptism, through the application of water to show the cleansing, the circumcision that we no longer need. We no longer need a bloody rite, a bloody ritual to signify us as the people of God. Because the perfect blood has been shed for us. And so Jesus does for us. Jesus did for us what we could not do. We are commanded to circumcise our hearts. We cannot do it. So he did it for us. So Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. How did he do it? That's the what. Here's the how. He did it by nailing our sinful record to the cross. So how did Jesus accomplish this circumcision of the heart? Short answer. He nailed our sinful record to the cross. The Colossians have a problem that caused them to be unable to circumcise their own hearts. It's the same problem the Israelites had. It's the same problem we have. And the problem is this. They are spiritually dead. Paul says in verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature. This echoes words that Paul writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter two, when he says you you were dead in your trespasses and sins. In fact, as I was reading Colossians 2, verse 13, I almost quoted Ephesians 2, 1. The reality, folks, is that we have violated God's laws. And all of our acts condemn us. Even those acts that we think are good outside of Christ. They condemn us because they are done for sinful motivations. And there is a record of everything that we have done. To rebel against God. And that record is called the law. The Ten Commandments. As I live my life, I am held to the standard of the Ten Commandments. And, you know, I could just look at one of them. You know, the first one says, you shall have no other gods before me. 
Ike often has other gods before God. And what is owed to God because of that? My death. Ike has worshipped images. You shall have no graven images. Ike has images. And so he owes to God for that sin. Death. And there's a sheet of paper. That all these things are written on. A sheet of parchment. It's not paper. It's parchment which is made from animal skins. It's uh, this, this word here that Paul uses when he says, having canceled the written code. It's a, it's a debt word. We used to have general stores in our culture and you used to be able to go to the general store and say, okay, Joe, I need, uh, I need a, uh, five pounds of wheat. I need, um, this tool. I need this. I need that. And, uh, I'll pay you at the end of the month. And Joe's going to sit there and he's going to write down everything you took and everything you owed, owe to him. This is a credit word, this, this written code. And it's the same thing. And in the Roman system, criminals who deserve death for their crimes would have their crimes written upon a piece of parchment. And it would be nailed to the instrument of their execution. Jesus, when he went to the cross, what did Pilate do? In all the languages of the day, he wrote Jesus, King of the Jews, and had it nailed to the cross so that everybody would know what Jesus is guilty of. Paul here says our debt sheet has been nailed to the cross. It wasn't just Jesus, King of the Jews, but it was Ike, idolater, Ike, God's name in vain, Ike profaner of the Sabbath, Ike everything that was nailed to the cross. John Piper puts it this way. He says, how was our damning record nailed to the cross? Parchment was not nailed to the cross. Christ was. So Christ became my damning record of bad deeds. He endured my damnation. The what of what we need is the circumcision of the heart. The how of what we need is that our sinful record was nailed to the cross, was punished in Christ. That's how God can be both just and justifier, as Paul says in Romans 3. God has declared that sin must be punished. He can't forgive it without it being punished. It was punished in the cross. My parchment was nailed to the cross and washed clean by the blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves by nailing our sinful record to the cross, giving us victory in him. Paul wraps up our our passage today, verse 15, with even more Roman imagery. He says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Think for a second about Satan. You know, don't, you know, obsess over him, but think for a second about him. He has worked in the entirety of Jesus life, tempting Jesus in the exact same way that we were tempted, that we are tempted and yet Jesus was, out, was without sin. Satan tried everything within his power to trip Jesus up, 
to mess up God's plan of salvation. And he couldn't do it. And so here on that Good Friday, he finally thinks he has won. I have killed God's Son. I have killed the Messiah. I have condemned all of humanity in in the crucifixion of God's one and only Son. I have won. God says, no, you've lost. Because the victory over the principalities and powers, as he says there, the demonic forces was found, was accomplished in the cross. And Paul says, Christ humiliated them. He talks about here, he made them a public spectacle. This was, if you were a Roman general and you went into an area, a province, and you defeated the armies, you defeated the ruler of that province, you would then take those rulers and you would humiliate them. And the way you would humiliate them is by having a parade in your honor as the general with them following behind your chariot in some form of humiliation, whether that be the shaving of their head or their beards, the removing of their clothes, the pelting them with dirt and filth, whatever it took to humiliate those former rulers, the victorious Roman general would do as part of their parade. And that's the picture we have here. In the cross, all spiritual powers in this world that are against God have been humiliated, have no power, which means that when we are united to Christ in his burial, we are victorious over the spiritual powers of this world. We're called to introspection in the scriptures. We're called to examine our lives. We're called to look at our lives in light of the law, in light of the gospel and pursue holiness, not pursue holiness for salvation reason, but pursue holiness because God calls us as his people, as his redeemed people to live a holy life. And so as we examine our lives in light of the law, oh, brothers and sisters, we know ourselves all too well. Oh, goodness, I have been an idolater all my life. I have had these sinful nature circumcised by the work of Jesus on the cross, and I am still an idolater. Oh, and what does Satan do with those things? What does Satan do with those thoughts? He comes along and he says, yeah, you are. And you know what that means? It means God probably doesn't love you. It means you're probably not saved. It means you ought to give up on everything right now and just go back to the life you lived before you had him. And you know what I can say to him? Be quiet. You have been you have been paraded and humiliated before God and before the people of God through the cross. You have no power over me. The only power that controls me is the gospel. Folks, we are made guilty. We are made to feel guilt when we violate God's law. And that guilt is meant to draw us to repentance. It's meant to draw us to confession. It's meant to draw us towards holiness and sanctification. It is not meant to destroy us. Satan tries to destroy us through our guilt. Not God. God wants us to love him more and understand more deeply how deep his grace goes. And he has defeated those voices in your head, those voices in your ear that say you are not good enough. You're not, but Jesus is for you. Jesus has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. 
by nailing our sinful record to the cross, giving us victory in him. Now, as we continue to move through the book of Colossians, as we begin to pick up through the end of chapter two and and chapter three and chapter four, Paul is going to give us rules to live by. And the temptation for us is to take those list of rules, make a checkbox next to each and every one of them and say, "Okay, I've got that one. I've taken care of this. I love my wife. I parent my children well. I do all these things. But but Paul wants us to remember Paul is. He's pounding this into our heads that we cannot do them, but Jesus has done them for us. And so now we can pursue those things in honor and glory to him. And it's important for us to remember, too, as we move forward into the rules, into the application section of Paul's letter. That we are victorious over sin because he has done for us what we could not do. Our victory is in the cross. Our victory is in the one who took our sinful record who took the condemnation that we deserve and nailed it to the cross. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Holy Father, we thank you so much that not only do we know who has worked on our behalf, but we know what and how he has worked for us. Help us to live in the victory that he purchased. Help us to confess in the victory that he purchased. Help us to seek to live holy lives, knowing that Satan has been defeated and that the power of sin over each and every one of your children has been broken. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.